Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast, where we exist so that way you can experience God. If you like this content, would you consider subscribing and joining our online community? That way you can get notified on each week's messages. With that being said, we pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to take one step closer to Jesus. If you're new to our church, my name is Brent, by the way, and I get the privilege of being your lead pastor, and let's continue to celebrate what the Lord has been doing in our midst. Uh, Several things that we'll celebrate today. Uh, uh, First of all, and this is uh, amazing, but uh, we found out this week Prathyash Thomas, uh, one of our Indian pastors, uh, prayed for somebody who had stage four cancer uh, uh, recently, uh, I think it was back in December, um, who God miraculously healed. They've gone to three different appointments after that. Yeah. Three different appointments after that uh, where it's been proven and shown and the doctors are kind of dumbfounded looking at the test results. And, uh, but stage four cancer completely healed. Come on, somebody. Yeah, yeah. Love that. That happens because God's presence is the most important thing, period. Who was at the Arise Awards last night? Okay, let's just all say it together. God's presence is the most important thing, period, right? We value God's presence. If you weren't there, you don't know why I'm laughing, but uh, if you were there, then you know. See, that's why you need to volunteer somewhere so you could be at those things. Hey, I also want to quickly let you know that uh, Pastor Kevin has been our youth pastor in South Shore uh, for a little while now, a few months, and uh, he started developing and realizing that his true passion was dance, and so he is now taking that step of faith and becoming more into dance ministry and has stepped down from that position, but we celebrate him and he will still be around here. He's not disappearing or anything like that. He'll be around and such, but but he stepped down. Doesn't affect this location nearly as much, but just wanted to inform you. And then also, I'm super excited to announce, as you hopefully have already seen, but Fire Night is this coming Sunday night. Yeah. Yeah. Don't show up at six o'clock tonight. There'll be nobody here. I don't think, at least, I don't know. Uh, but on the 29th, which is this coming Sunday at, at six o'clock is our fire night. Dr. Michael Brown will be with us uh, to speak. He was a leader during the Brownsville revival. He's going to have an amazing message. Uh, he is no stranger to our church. I trust that you know who he is by now. If you don't, you'll see him in just a minute uh, by way of video. And so make sure you are at fire night and, uh, and we would love to, to have you there that night. It's going to be awesome as God moves in our midst. Um, Let me just start this message by telling a quick story and talking about the goat before the goat. Um, Because before Tom Brady was known as the goat, which gets gets used way too much. And if you don't know what I'm saying when I say goat, greatest of all time, common sports term gets used now. Uh, But before Tom Brady was known as the greatest football player of all time, for a long time there was another person who was virtually unanimously put as the number one football player of all time. His name is Jerry Rice. Uh, Yeah, anybody remember Jerry Rice? Yeah. He's a 2010 Hall of Famer in the first induction class that he was eligible for. Uh, he ended up with three Super Bowl rings. He played in 13 Pro Bowls. Two NFL off times was NFL Offensive Player of the Year. This is maybe the most uh, intriguing of all of his, his uh, uh, statistics and uh, things that will maybe never be broken, his records. He caught at least one pass in 274 consecutive games. From 1985 to 2004, almost 20 years, he caught a a pass in every single game he played in. That's unheard of. And especially when you consider, for those of us who are football fans, that that was an era where you could hit wide receivers and and the injuries and the the, the things that would go on in that time. And and until Tom Brady kind of came and kind of took a spot maybe, and there might be even still some argument, but he was considered on every poll that you'll ever find as the number one NFL player of all time. But what you may not know is the background story to Jerry Rice. He's got a really interesting background story. He was born in a little town of Crawford, Mississippi, in middle of nowhere. And he was born to his father, who was a bricklayer and, and a construction worker who would lay bricks, and a little farm boy growing up on the farms. In fact, Jerry Rice would say that he received his speed because when he was a kid, they used to chase the horses in the pasture to see who could catch the horse. If you could catch the horse, you get fast, right? And so if they wanted to ride the horse, they had to catch him, so they would chase the horses around. And he received his speed that way. And uh, growing up, he would help his father lay bricks. And uh, oftentimes, as they were doing that, he would, his dad would toss him bricks. And what would happen is he would start tossing him a couple bricks at a time, two, three, four at a time. He's just, like, chunking them. And Jerry Rice would have to catch one, catch one, drop it, catch one, catch one, drop it. And so you kind of get good hand-eye coordination. You become a good receiver that way. But the coolest part of his story is that he was not a football player. At all. That was not part of his uh, future. He did not see that as a part of his future until he was in high school. 
And uh, he was not beyond, uh, you know, uh, getting in a little bit of trouble here and there. And so when he was in high school, uh, he decided he was going to skip class one day. And he's skipping class. And his vice principal catches him, a man by the name of Ezel Wicks. And uh, Mr. Wicks catches him in the hallway skipping class. And Jerry Rice takes off sprinting so that he does not get caught. Anybody been there? Okay. Uh, he's sprinting through the hallways and running out of the school so he doesn't get caught by Mr. Wicks. And uh, Jerry would say it this way in, in his own words. He said he had no intention of ever playing high school football. But when Mr. Wicks finally found him, he said, son, you're either getting in detention or you're going to play for the football team because you are too fast <laughs> to not be playing for the football team. And I find this to be an interesting story because the great Jerry Rice that is the number one football player of all time on that list, the one that's the goat in so many ways, the one that's the greatest of all times, you would have never known his name if there wasn't for a happenstance finding of Mr. Wicks in the hallways of his high school that said, hey, I need you to try out for the football team. You would never know who Jerry Rice is. He would have been a bricklayer more than likely like his father was, which there's nothing wrong with being a bricklayer whatsoever unless you are called to something greater than being a bricklayer. And so you, you see this story of somebody who sees into the life of this young man and calls something out of him that he doesn't even know is there and elevates him into the future that's going to put him as one of the greatest of all time and around this room. Even if you're not a football fan, if you grew up in that era, you probably at least know the name of Jerry Rice. I wonder if the church doesn't have a similar responsibility to see things in people and circumstances and in society and actually prophesy and draw things out of them that's not there. And you speak as though it was there, even though you don't see it with your natural eyes because your spirit sees something. If there's not a very real sense that you and I become Mr. Wicks in people's lives, that we are calling things forth that they can't see and other people can't naturally see. And, and you see this in, um, in the Bible in many, many, many places. We'll share a few of those this morning. But the main one is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, if you want to turn there. Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, back in the time where, where you have the Israelites and, and the nation of Israel divides into two groups. You have Judah as the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom is still called Israel, and they start to both end up in exile, and uh, the northern kingdom falls for, first, they were more wicked, and they fall first, and then Judah falls after that, and they end up what's, in what's called Babylonian exile. So the Babylonians come in, uh, take over, and bring many people back. Uh, you know Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are all people of the Babylonian in, in, uh, 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 exile. And uh, 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 Ezekiel is one of those who's coming back. In fact, he would have been a protege. He would have been right there alongside of Daniel at that time period. And Ezekiel starts prophesying, interestingly enough, not to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, but to the entire entirety of it. And, uh, and he's going to get a, a, a visual. He's going to be... Um, uh, get a vision from God that we're going to find in Ezekiel 37. Now, if you grew up in church, you're very familiar with this passage. And just to break it up and do it a little bit differently than maybe it would normally be done, I asked Dr. Brown, who's speaking for us next Sunday night, if he would just uh, read the scripture for us. He's also probably the greatest Jewish apologist on planet Earth, and this is a key scripture to the Jewish nation. And so Dr. Brown, who will be with us Sunday night, is going to read our scripture for us. So turn your attention to the screens. Hey, friends, this is Dr. Michael Brown. I cannot wait to be with you next Sunday night for the fire service. Boy, we're expecting God to move now. It's my honor to read the text for today, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, 
prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Amen. Are y'all ready? Come on, are y'all ready? Let me give you four points this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, we live in a time of dry bones. We live in a time of dry bones. We look around our society and people are empty and dry, running on a treadmill but not going anywhere. And lest we only look at our society, I would look inside the church as well because the church is oftentimes also full of dry bones. This prophecy is specifically given to the nation of Israel and to the northern and southern kingdom I just associated with. And while it's specific to them, I believe there's things we can pull from it for ourselves. And sometimes that is the body of Christ. And sometimes that is inside of this room. And there's, there, there's some bones we have in this room that are kind of old and, and, and dry and, and a little crusty too sometimes. Uh, there's some bones, like, like this is a little comical, but, but some of you got a tailbone. Because some people love to sit on their blessed assurance and never do anything for the Lord. You love to come in and great, great, great teaching and, and praise and worship, and you love to hear it, but you never actually go out and do anything. And there's a lot of Christians, a lot of people sitting in churches that have a great tailbone that is dry, and it needs to come back to life. Come on, somebody. There are some people that have a great finger bone. You've seen these kind of people in churches. They're always pointing at somebody else. You should do this, and you should do that. And if you just fix this, it would be better. They never look inwardly at themselves. They're always blaming somebody else for everything that's going on. Everything in the problem in America is always somebody else. Everything in the problem of the church is always somebody else. And they're never taking responsibility for themselves. We, we don't have these people in our church as much, but you might have known these from elsewhere. Uh, but, but some people have an issue with having a dry jawbone. Because they're always talking, always got something to say about somebody, always gossiping, always slandering, always yap, 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 yap. They're always talking in some place they shouldn't be talking, right? And you see these kind of people that, that, that reflect inside the church. How about this one? You, you got some people that have a, a dry hip bone because they sit on their wallets week after week and never actually surrender their finances to God. And you get a dry, a dry hip bone because we'll, we'll surrender other parts of us to the Lord, but, but we never actually start giving. We never become a part of what God's doing in that way. And, and then you get other people that, that, that they're missing bones, like they ain't got a backbone. Christians who love to worship on Sunday morning, but if you actually put them on the spot on Monday morning, they have no backbone to actually stand up for what they believe in. <laughs> Ooh, the protege of Ezekiel had backbone as he would constantly go to the Lord in prayer. His name was Daniel until he's thrown into the lion's den. And I just heard somebody say this week, and I thought it was so funny. They said the lions couldn't eat Daniel because he was just all backbone. That was all he had. He was just backbone. Listen, we need Christians with backbone. We need people inside the church with backbone. And that's a, a comical way of looking at it a little bit. But I just want to say that these bones are dry and they are dead. They are lifeless. There is nothing in these bones. There is no life. There's no recognition of what they, they could be. There's no recognition of who they were. Unless you're on the TV show Bones with whatever that doctor's name is, you can't tell who this possibly was. There is no hope for these bones. There is no pill that's going to suddenly make these bones come to life. These are dry, dead bones. These are good to be given to dogs. That's what they're good to be done for. And, and God leads Ezekiel to and from in these bones, to and from, walking around these dry, dead, arid bones. And I wonder, do you recognize, and I know this is a specific prophecy to Israel, but I just want to pull the, the concepts into our day and age today, that you're being led back and forth every day of your life among dry bones. Every day of your life, you're being led back and forth among dry bones. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? You go into your coworker and they're hateful about everything and you swear that they're demon possessed and you're ready to cast a demon out of them and maybe they need that but it's a life that is dry bones. You you see your boss who drinks himself to sleep every night and his eyes are hollow because of the dry bones that you're being led back and forth in front of. The buccaneer fans who who who, who lost last Sunday. <laughs> and there's a difference between being a fan and worshiping the bucks 
And their lives just fell apart because who they worshipped just didn't fulfill what they needed. And their lives just fall apart. It's a shame to me that the police department will tell you that every time the buccaneers lose, domestic violence goes skyrocketing because husbands start beating their wives. It's the difference between being a fan and, and worshipping a team. That's a whole different thing. It's dry bones that are around us, a marriage that's dead. Maybe you hate going home after work because your marriage is dry and it's dead. You don't even want to go home. The teenager that when you look on the outside, it looks like they are so messed up, they are so gone that they are dry bones and you see them and you walk and you're being led to and from them all the time. The inner cities we drive past, the hopeless people in the car beside you that you can look over and see, the atheist who curses God and spends his whole life Cursing a God that he doesn't believe exists because he's full of dry bones. Have you noticed that you are being led back and forth every day of your life as you go in and out of the circles that you walk into full of dry bones? And you got to see them that way because without Christ, they are lifeless. And that's a confusing time. That's a confusing time. And point two, if you're taking notes, dry bones are confusing. Dry bones are, are confusing. We have more money and less peace. We have more friends and less connection. We have more entertainment and less happiness. We have more conveniences, yet we still have more stress. We have more opportunities than we've ever had, yet we also have more insecurities than we've ever had. We have more safety and more anxiety at the same time. We have more freedom Yet we are more bound than we've ever been. We are in confusing times. It's almost like there's been a world that's been marketed to us. It's actually called secular humanism. That's been marketed to us that said, if you will follow this path, you will get this outcome of this utopia. It's called a secular utopia. But what we find is that as we follow this path, and we naturally do because it's the air we breathe within the United States of America, as we follow this path, we start realizing that the promise that was promised to us was not fulfilled. And so you have friends, but you have no connection. You end up having safety and anxiety. You have more freedom, but you also are more bound than we've ever been. And what starts to happen is it creates a deep insecurity inside of us. And when you, when you take that and you add on to it this, this global pandemic that we've just walked through and how that has affected every person around the entire globe has been touched by it in some way, and some of us a lot more than others, but we've all been touched by this global pandemic. When, when you take that into account, it creates this very confusing time. Anthropologists would call this a gray zone, neither black nor white. It's a, it's a gray zone. It's, it's kind of similar to, to when you ended World War II. Let's just say that you were in France or someplace, and you get the notification that the Second World War has ended. Praise God. It ended, but if you live in that city, it didn't end for you. Your city is still blown up. Your house might not be there. You still don't have access to food. You still don't have access to the essential things that you need. And while the war may be officially over, you are left in this very confusing time about the future. So if you put yourself in that situation and you're in that little village in France, do, do you buy property or do you sell the property? I, I, I don't know. It's a gray zone. It's not black or white. It, I don't know. Should I start a business? Or should I close a business? Should I advance forward in something that I feel led to do? Or should I harbor everything and, and try to live in safety because of what's facing me? It's a very confusing time. It's called a gray zone. It's a, it's a time of, of crisis. It's a time of, of questioning what's going on. It's a confusing time. Do I spend money or do I invest money? Or do I try to save all the money and put it in the bank and protect all the money? What do I do? And a confusing time, and God looks at Ezekiel and he says, hey, can these bones live? Well, that, that's even a confusing question, because of course the answer is no. The bones can't live. These are dry bones. These can't live. Of course they can't live. Duh, right? God, right? I, I mean, right? I, they, they can't live, right? God? <laughs> I think that's kind of what's going on in his his mind, and I think there's a powerful lesson right here, if nowhere else. Because when God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? I love Ezekiel's response. Only you know. You tell me. 
I can't tell you if these bones can live. I can't tell you if I'm supposed to go forward or backwards. I can't tell you if this person is going to give their life to Christ or not when they look like everything has fallen apart in their life and they are so jacked up and messed up. I can't tell you this, but God, only you know, which I love because that is an appropriate and a great response because it leaves room for a miracle. And you and I are too often looking at dry bones and no, 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 it's it's too, they, they, no, their time's passed. The most appropriate response is, God, only you know, and I'm going to pray like I believe that it's going to happen because only you know what's going to happen. God, can you save them? Can you rescue that marriage? Can you fix those finances? Can you redeem that prodigal child? Can you restore that business? Because you never know, God might be up to something. God might be up to something. It's always darkest just before dawn. Which, when we look at revival as now in this theme, I just want to take a quick second Because we've talked about awakening and revival and renewal a little bit the last few weeks. And we'll continue looking at it the next couple weeks. And it's going to be awesome. Don't miss a single single week, uh, especially next week. Don't miss next week. But, But America right now, if you look at America and if you watch the news, who literally gets you to watch it by saying everything wrong with America... Because you're more likely to stay tuned if you know there's something catastrophic going to show on the news and and it's so depressing. and That's what they do. And so if you only watch the news, you'll see one point of view. But I just want to open your eyes to what God may be doing in America. (laughs) Because there is a a pattern of revival. I don't know if you know this. and, And there's different patterns. People will pull different patterns together. This is the pattern that I pulled together. They're all very similar. It's a matter of, of, of little details of the differences. But there's a pattern of revival. Let me give you eight steps in the pattern of revival. Number one, we find ourselves in a trouble or crisis or something that leads to a holy discontent. We, we, we find ourselves in trouble, crisis, or something. Holy discontent meaning, and, and this is going to be an emphasis next week, so don't miss it. Holy discontent meaning, I'm looking around going, this ain't working. I'm tired of life the way it is. I was promised this, but it looks like one of those infomercial commercials where it looks really good in the commercial, then you get the package and you find out it's not what I thought it was. I thought if I got this, it would make me happy. I thought if I did this, if I accomplished this, if my name got put on this plaque, whatever it is, I thought it would make me happy. But you find yourself in this holy discontent of looking around going, this ain't... This ain't so good. Or it could be a trouble of some sort in your life. You ever notice the first step to somebody coming to Christ is oftentimes a trouble in their life. Let a health crisis come, they run the church. Let a marriage crisis come, all of a sudden they want to run to God. Uh, That's a common thing that happens, or a crisis. And this is true whether we're talking individual people or whether we're talking about an entire nation as with uh, America. But but the holy discontent says something Something's not right. There's got to be more than what I'm experiencing. I'm sick of the way things are, which leads to number two, people begin to pray. Well, whenever you are in a crisis or in this discontented place or in trouble, you start to cry out to God. That's the the natural flow of what would begin to happen. But when you begin to pray, it leads to number three, because prayer leads to the presence of God. (coughs) Prayer leads, because when you pray... The very nature of prayer is saying, you are God, and I'm not. And it leads to saying, God, I need you in whatever I'm walking through. And when you call out to God, he will answer you. Come on, somebody. Anybody can testify to that? And so you cry out to God, he will answer to you. And the presence of God then begins to flow once again in a person's life, or in a church's life, or in a nation's life, whatever we're looking at. And you see this renewal start to happen. And when that starts happening, it leads to you surrendering and repenting. Because when the presence of God comes, God's presence is what what leads us towards repentance. And so we start surrendering ourselves to Christ. And this may be the most crucial spot of the revival pattern. Because we as Americans hate the idea of surrender. We are strong. We are bold. I don't need nobody else. We hate the idea of repentance and surrender. And you get the first three steps, not all that uncommon. People will walk in a crisis. They begin to pray. They experience God's presence. But God's presence has to work its effect out of leading us into repentance and surrender. Don't don't stop. Don't stop at prayer. Don't stop at God's presence. If we have all of the presence of God in this room that we desire, but people are not repenting and surrendering their life to Christ, then we're not not taking the the logical next step. It's 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 a big step, and this is where a lot of people get lost. This is where Americans get lost. You see a beautiful testimony of of September 11th, and and not that September 11th is beautiful, but you see this, that September 11th happened, and all of a sudden people ran to God because a crisis hit. People began to pray. People found comfort in God's presence, but they never repented. 
and they never surrendered. And so a month later, all of them just kind of went back to the way life was. Do you see that? This is a crucial step in the process. Number five, after that happens, surrender and repentance leads to new patterns. When you surrender your life to Christ, all of a sudden, you start to create new patterns. That former one was the renewal in you. It's the start of that renewal, that revival inside of yourself. That's the renewal. But now you are starting to create new patterns because when you surrender your life to Christ, all of a sudden, maybe, I won't scare everybody one time, but maybe you start giving. Maybe you start serving. Maybe you start getting up a little early to pray or staying up a little late at night or going into your, your vehicle in the middle of the day and praying. All of a sudden, when you surrender your life to Christ, you will find that you naturally pattern your life around the Lord. Until you are patterning your life around the Lord, you probably haven't surrendered your life to Christ. Ooh, did I say that? Say la. So, so this, this greater surrender acts as a preparation to the greater things God wants to do. It's like building a runway for the Holy Spirit to move and show up and bring revival, which leads to number six. These new patterns leads to groups of people. We'd call them remnants contending for revival. So there will be groups of people that now, when they have this new pattern, they've surrendered their life, they got this new pattern, they start clustering together. It's like the candles on that little cake I told you about a couple weeks ago. And all of a sudden, these people start clustering together, and this renewal movement starts happening in such a way that it forms a remnant. A remnant is a little bit of what's going to be a lot. Before the revival hits a lot, it's going to start in a remnant. It's going to start with a little bit. And so these remnants begin being formed, and they start crying out for revival. They start crying out for awakening. They start crying out for something great, something amazing to happen. That begins to go on. And this is so key because consumer Christianity is directly opposed to these contending Christianity. And so many of us are brought up and raised that we think consumer Christianity is Christianity. It's not. Consumer Christianity says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to consume. It's the tailbone Christian. I'm going to come in and I'm going to consume over and over and over. And I'm just going to take in and take in and take in. Contending Christianity says, yes, I'm going to receive from the Lord, but then I'm going to contend in faith for something greater than I am. Contenders, remnants. And these groups always start small. These are people that, that yearn for revival. And no, make no mistake, these kind of people will encounter pain and difficulty and misunderstandings and opposition of different type. But as they press forward, these people are willing to accept the pain and the difficulty because they see a different future for the church. A person who's on fire will always irritate the one who's not. Just trying to make this practical. That remnant that comes on fire will irritate everybody in the church or outside the church. When a church gets on fire, you'll be called a cult. You'll be called heresy. You'll be made fun of. Why? Because you have what we're not. It's a jealousy. It's the same way you'll, you'll find somebody that, you know, we all remember when we were in high school and you had the good-looking girl, good-looking guy, whatever, and you would say things about them just because you wanted to be them if you were being honest. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. When a church gets hot, the lukewarm will get frustrated by it. But this remnant starts to get formed, and as it starts to get formed, more people come into it, and the remnant leads to revival. Because as the remnant gets formed, it starts to attract others into this, this, this movement, this excitement, this fire, because some people will be repulsed by it because they just refuse to step up. But there'll be a whole other classification of people. Who am I talking to in this room who will say, I want revival. I want what this person has. I see it, and I long for it. And you don't despise the remnant, you actually step into the remnant. And the remnant leads to revival. And revival is where it goes from a group inside the church to the church. The remnant is the group inside the church that's in their own little revival. But then all of a sudden it goes into the church. It goes into a rise. And when it goes into a rise, then it has the opportunity to become the true awakening we've all longed for. Because revival will lead to awakening. Come on, somebody. But I want you to see this. This is the, the primary nugget that I want you to see of that whole little pattern I just gave you, is that it all starts with crisis. Crisis can be, depending on how we react to it, the gateway to revival. That's why we have that old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. When you are in crisis and the bullets are flying, all of a sudden you find out what you really believe. And you start crying out to a God that you didn't believe in 30 minutes ago, but now I start believing in that God. In fact, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. <laughs> 
So many people's salvation stories started right there. And every one of the great awakenings that have ever hit America or around the world in the great revivals, the great awakening type movements that have hit other countries, every one of them started in crisis. Here's a great leadership proverb for you, but it's also true in the church, never waste a crisis. Because a crisis may just be God moving in the midst of what's going on. Every one of them comes out of crisis. Crisis. I, I love this bench right here. There used to be a little sign on it because this bench, it used to say this bench is a 300-year-old reminder that revival is still possible. Some of you will remember, we haven't got it out in a little while. We'll leave it out the next few weeks because it's important. But this bench right here, people sat on this bench as Jonathan Edwards preached during the first Great Awakening in America. This bench is 300 years old from a little church in New London, Connecticut, that Jonathan Edwards, the great reformer, the great awakening preacher, the one who started the great awakening with a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let that sink in for today. Ooh, I thought God just loves me. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, didn't shout, didn't holler. In fact, he purposely spoke in a monotone voice in such a way that God's presence moved on the place and the great awakening was sparked. Why? Because people went beyond just the presence into surrender and repentance, and that started the process going even further. And we were able to get our hands on this bench. You know, we, 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 we look at that Great Awakening, you look at what's happening in America at that time, which wasn't America as we know it today, obviously, but what was happening in the New World at that time, and the tensions that were mounting, the frustrations with Great Britain. In fact, the historians will tell you that what led to the Revolutionary War was the Great Awakening. That actually gave permission for rebellion that led into the Revolutionary War. Go back to my July 4th message last year if you want to hear more details about that. But, 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 but this, this time of turmoil, this time of crisis leads to people sitting on this bench just like you're sitting in your nice padded pews this morning, your nice padded chairs this morning. A time of hearing God's word and actually surrendering and repenting and moving forward. You know, we tend to think, it's human nature, I think, I, I guess, but we tend to think that there was like, maybe there was some time in history that like everybody was Christians, and then we've slowly declined from that point. Like, I don't know what it was. Let's just say it's 1200 AD, and in 1200 AD, everybody was believers. Like, everybody, they just all, they were all Christians, and then it's just slowly declined to where it is, and we've been on this decline ever since. That is not true. If you study, what you'll see is that Christianity has done this. It's the sin cycle in Judges that you see throughout the book of Judges happening still around the world. Because people will wane in their faith. Crisis comes. They'll come back. They'll wane in their faith. Crisis comes, and they'll come back. It's true of an individual, and it's true of a nation, and it's true globally. And so it's not that it's slowly declined. It's actually been up and down. And I share all that because I'm trying to go somewhere with you. I hope that you get this. I hope that you get this. Uh, because because I, I really believe we're on the verge of something incredible. William Seymour, the great preacher for the Azusa Street Revival, prophesied when he was still alive 100 years ago that there would be a great revival 100 years from then, which is nowadays, that there would be a great revival that would exceed what was done in Azusa Street. The very specific prophet Bob Jones prophesied that there would be, in this coming age, that there would be a billion salvation youth movement around the world. A billion around the world. I'm saying this so that you can see that maybe, 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 maybe the crisis isn't the end. Maybe it's the beginning. Number three, if you're taking notes, prophecy is speaking what God is saying, not what we are seeing. <laughs> he says, prophesy that these dead bones, these, these pointless bones, th these bones, this is foolish, this is ridiculous, prophesy that they will come alive. That's crazy. But he did the same thing for all of us. We didn't do baptisms in this service, but next service there's six baptisms that'll go on. It's dead things coming alive. It's a visual of what's happened in the spirit realm. Prophesy in a shepherd boy that he'll be the greatest king of Israel. Pro prophesy, prophesy that in the murderer named Moses that he'll become the greatest leader in the Bible. 
Pro- prophesy that in Gideon, the lowliest of his, of his clan, as he would see himself, that he's going to become the great warrior judge. Prophesy that this young boy named Samuel, who's just growing up in the house of God, is become, going to become one of the great prophets of all of Israel's history. Prophesy that Rahab, who was a prostitute, is not only going to be part of the deliverance of Israel, but eventually the deliverance of all of us because Jesus comes through partially through her offspring. (laughs) Prophesy that Paul, this church leader, this church persecutor, this man that we would not let in the doors of our church, this man that we would shun and say, you can't come in because you might hurt somebody. You got to know who he was. The man that we would hide from. Prophesy that he's going to become the greatest leader in the church history and write two-thirds of the New Testament. Prophesy what you can't see based on what you hear the Lord say. Because you can't prophesy based on what you can see. Nobody was ever, you do realize that when Paul got saved, people hid from him for a long time. If you study the, the chronology of his life, it wasn't like he got saved and they just accepted him in the church. He got saved and they're like, yeah, you need to stay back for a while, bro. Like we've heard stories about you. You need to prove yourself. And he spends a long time in preparation and training and being accepted into the church. In fact, he's first found by Peter, who's kind of the bold and the strong one of all of them. Peter's the first one that's even willing to meet with him. <coughs> so, speaking life over death becomes this powerful prophetic responsibility that every one of us have. We have a responsibility to see the world not as you see it through your natural eyes, but as what you hear God saying. Which is why Proverbs 18 would say that the tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it eat its fruits. You have the power to speak things into existence through your mouth. Some of you have experienced both the life and death of this. You've had people that have spoken over to you and called you out of things and said things to you. I've had people that when I was a young minister said things to me that, that were so nonchalant, but it meant so much to me. It birthed something out of me. It called me to a higher place. But then we've also had people that spoke things over us that 30 years later, their voices are still echoing in their heads. Why? Because your mouth has that power of life and death, and what you prophesy matters. And it's not just that, but as ambassadors of Christ, we are not allowed to prophesy what we see with our eyes. We are allowed to prophesy what we hear the Father saying as an ambassador to the kingdom. What the kingdom says is what I say. I don't get to say what I want to say. And 2 Corinthians 5 would teach us that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors That is your role. And we have too many people walking around telling each other and speaking over America and speaking over your families and your relationships and speaking what you hear the news say or what you hear others say or what you see with your natural eyes instead of speaking what the Father is saying and what the kingdom is leading you to do. We're speaking too much of our own will. And it's so crazy because because it says, "As as he prophesied, as he prophesied, as he as he prophesied, he started hearing the noise of rattling bones. As, you're not going to hear rattling bones until you prophesy. Until you start speaking things into existence that are not as though they were, you're not going to hear the rattling of bones until you start the initial step of prophesying what you can't see and you hear the Father say. That's when you start seeing things. That's when change actually starts happening. And so some people are like, oh, I just agree with that word, Pastor Brent. That's awesome. But when are you going to go to work and start prophesying over your boss, your coworker? The news comes on. You're like, I ain't listening to you. I'm going to prophesy what I hear the Father saying instead of just what you're saying. Because your, your prophecy activates the Spirit of God. And we speak over things. What we speak over things is so, so, so important. But, but, but I love this because... Because it didn't end there. Like, it would be natural to say, oh, I prophesied, and I heard some rattling, and it was done. And this is where we make a mistake sometimes in the body of Christ, because you'll see a rattling, and, and then you stop. It's, it's an interesting part of the story. When he prophesies, he hears the bones coming together. He hears the rattling, and, and he even sees skin come on to the people, but he says there's no life in them. See, see I'm so thankful for humanitarian works and, and, and those kind of things. I'm thankful that when somebody is in need, you can give them money or you can give them a ride or you can help them in some tangible way. You can offer different leadership and guidance. I'm thankful for biblical principles that help somebody, but it's like dry bones rattling. There's still no life there. At some point, you have to keep prophesying. You got to speak life until suddenly they are reborn. 
and the wind of the Holy Spirit blows and that wind goes into the person and they become a new creation and it's not just dry bones rattling. All of a sudden that new creation is coming alive. It's got to go to that point. Don't stop early. Don't stop early. Don't stop because it got better. Oh, they're not doing drugs anymore. Praise God. That's awesome. That's dry bone. But don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop till they're down here with you in church on their knees before God, praying out, lifting their hands, crying out to Jesus, loving. Don't start till they're part of the remnant. Don't stop. You don't stop prophesying just because it got better. Just because you hear some dry bones rattling, don't stop. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. That's the story of the church, man. That's the story of the church. Most, not all, but most of the greatest ministers in the history of the church would never have been hired in the church based on their track record. Starting with Paul. Starting with Peter, really. He preached the first message. Peter just denied Jesus days ago. This ain't like it's, oh, this is in my history. God redeemed me, and you're talking about 15 years. Like, he's a day, like two weeks ago, whatever. You know, he's a days ago. It's more like a month and a half, but you get the idea. I think of like a Steve Hill who was led to... The Brownsville Revival and was, was the main preacher for the Brownsville Revival when it happened. And he grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, where he was a drug addict. He used to sell his blood for drugs. He used to rob his parents and places to get money for drugs. He was arrested numerous times. At 16, he was so hard-hearted that when his father died, he stood over the grave and said, Good riddance. Good riddance. Until he found himself in a crisis. And he was convulsing of a drug overdose. Demonic things were all around him, and he knew it as he tells his story. And a pastor prayed for him, and suddenly, immediately, miraculously, it just stopped. And he said, oh, there's something here. <laughs> oh, come on, y'all. Dry bones rattling. And they kept praying for him. And eventually, he gives his life to Christ. And he led the greatest, or was the main speaker for the greatest move of God in Argentina that ever happened. And then came here to Brownsville and, and led a great move of God at Brownsville up in Florida, in the, in the panhandle of Florida. He led a great man of God. Why? Because, because, because he didn't start out like he got it all together. Dry bones came alive and made him into something. And I could tell the story of Nikki Cruz. I love Nikki Cruz and, and the, the, the cross and the switchblade and, and, and goes up to, to New York and they start preaching. And this gang member who's ready to kill uh, the preacher, what, my mind's going, David Wilkerson. The gang member's ready to kill David Wilkerson who has this call to preach and, 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 and he gets radically saved. And this gang member from the roughest streets of New York City in that time period became, becomes the Latin Billy Graham. Becomes the great man, dry bones rattling prophesying, seeing what's not there with your natural eyes, but you hear the Spirit of God saying, that's the story of the church. People who were diagnosed as unredeemable being redeemed and used for God's glory. Amen. Which, by the way, and this is a huge emphasis as we're about to close, this is the identity of our church. And I've said this before, and some of you might remember this, but we'll keep saying it because it needs to keep being reminded. Our name is not a right, a rise church is not our church name. Some of you are like, what? That's not our church name. Arise Church is a prophetic declaration every time you say it. It's not just a name. So when you say Arise Church, that's why we tag the, the city or the location it's in afterwards. So when you say, oh, Arise Church at Brandon, I go to Arise Church, I go to Arise Church at Brandon. You need to stop saying I go to Arise. Arise Church at Brandon. All the dry bones that are in this region, I command you to start rattling and wake up and to have blood in your veins all over again. <coughs> That's what Arise Church means. So Arise Church at South Shore. Rise up. You are speaking and prophesying every time you say our name. It's not just a name. You are prophesying over this region that the dead things that God is calling to come alive would start rattling and come alive and have breath and life inside of them all over again. It's not a name. It's not just a name. That's never the way it was intended. So I just challenge you when you start saying our name, don't just say it, say it declare it. It's a prophetic call. Declare it, declare it, declare it. Which leads to number four, and I'll wrap up with this point. Number four, these are the days of revival. <laughs> I love how that scripture ends up, because I can testify alongside of Ezekiel. I see an army rising up. If you can look beyond what you see on the news... If you can look beyond what you see with your natural eyes, you will start to realize that revival is now. And we are in the days of revival. There is an army rising up. 
We have to change our expectations because our expectations are so closely related to faith and start seeing what God sees and that this crisis that has been sent before us, whether you look at the economic crisis or political crisis or the uprising and the struggles and all of these things, when you look at all of the different crises and COVID, all these things bundled together might just be the beginning of something great. And we've been conditioned to say, oh, this is the end of America. Maybe it's the beginning, and we just don't see it that way. These are the days of revival. <laughs> my, my Bible teaches me where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let me get that. You got to get this. Where sin abounds, where there's much sin, there's always more grace. We live in an America, a culture family dynamics, situations with much sin. But there is more grace. Are you getting this? There's always more remedy than there is sickness. So let's just suppose that our church somehow miraculously got the cure for cancer. Listen, if we got the cure for cancer, business is booming. What if these are, should be the greatest days in the history of the church because we have the remedy for the very thing that's ailing this world. But so many churches are speaking death instead of speaking the words of life. So many Christians are speaking what they see instead of speaking the words of life. But we have the answer to the very thing that people are longing for. They just don't know what they're longing for sometimes. I just want to say these are the days of revival. These are the best days in American history for people who are part of the body of Christ. These are the days of revival we are in right now. There's such a spirit of patriotism around our nation. Let me just be clear. If you love America, you better pray for revival because revival is the only thing going to save America. At the same time, revival is going to save America if you can look through your spiritual eyes. You see, the problems of our land cannot be fixed by the government because they're not physical problems. They're spiritual problems underneath the surface of what's going on. And the real problem is not the lack of the government showing up. It's the lack of the church showing up and prophesying over dead bones. All of these physical problems are... You can't fix racism by a law. You might need laws and things sometimes for certain... I'm not against laws necessarily, but racism is a heart issue. Laws don't fix heart issues. God fixes heart issues. The struggles we have with poverty and insecurity and crisis and people cutting themselves and suicide and tense anxiety, these are heart issues going on internally inside of you. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ, as prophetically declared by the people of God, the remnant that rises up, will actually call the dead things to come alive. It has to happen. Spiritual problems must be solved by spiritual people. And the problem is not that the government is too carnal. The problem is that the church is too carnal. Last week, we shared that video of the abandoned houses and the abandoned churches. And I just want to say God's presence is coming back to churches again. The remnant that begins to be formed, and I'm not just seeing it here at Arise. I'm seeing it all over. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. We are part of a movement that's much bigger than our church of movement that God is forming all around. And I think Florida is a key player in this. It's been prophesied all over the place, but I just sense it in my own spirit. And I believe that we are a key player in this as well, along with other churches, that the remnant forms the revival. So the question becomes, what will your role in revival be? What will your role in revival be? Will you be the revivalist? Will you be the, the George Whitfield, the Billy Graham, the William Seymour? If you think right now that you are unprepared and uneducated and unequipped to be that person, then you are in good company because that is the greatest people that God has used throughout the years. Stop looking at what you're not and look at who God is. What will your role be in revival? Will you be the revivalist? Will you be the evangelist? Will you be part of that remnant? What will your role be in revival? We live in an age where many of the generals in the faith are passing away. 
just, just stand up with me. Just, if you stand up, it'll help me close. <laughs> Ken's looking at me in the back. I got to close. We're running out of time. We're living in a day and age where it's just watching it before us. There's many of the generals of the faith die or in their final years, sometimes final months. And um, it, it just touched me deeply a couple weeks ago uh, or about a week ago, uh, I don't know, seven, nine days ago, whatever it was. Uh, Jack Hayford died, Dr. Jack Hayford. And some of you will know him, some of you won't, but Jack Hayford was a general, especially in the Pentecostal faith, but in the faith in general. Uh, he was an educated, brilliant teacher of the Bible uh, in a time where Pentecostals were on the wrong side of the tracks and, and all this. He gave credibility to what God was doing. He became a leader of leaders, uh, started an amazing university in Texas, and, and uh, uh, his books and uh, teachings have mentored countless pastors around the world. And I, and I look at Jack Hayford, and, and, and he passed away. And I mean, I mean he, he wrote some of the, the most amazing songs that we sang in churches for a long time. He's very creative. And I watched the passing of John, Jack Hayford, and I had this thought, who's going to fill those shoes? If you're old enough, you remember an old George Jones song that said, who's going to fill those shoes? Who's going to fill those shoes? Who's going to fill Jack Hayford's shoes? Who's going to be the next Jack Hayford? Who's going to be the next William Seymour? Who's going to be the next George Whitfield? Who's going to fill these people's shoes? Because make no mistake, it's you and I. Somebody has to rise up. Somebody has to be. And it's not about filling their shoes. I know that. It's about you being everything God's called you to be and not settling for mediocrity, which don't miss next week. Bring somebody with you because that's, this message is just, every one of these messages really is just adding to another layer. Because too often we settle for looking better than the person next to us instead of what our potential is in Christ. And we become satisfied because we think, oh, I'm more on fire than they are. Well, I'm closer to God than they are. I'm, I'm doing more, I'm whatever. And, and we judge ourselves based on each other rather than the biblical standard or your potential in Christ. Who's going to fill their shoes? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing? If you were moved by this message, we would love to hear your testimony. Please email it to amen at myarisechurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged and inspired. We'll see you next time.